I'm glad you're here. Uh, let's open our Bibles up to Matthew chapter 26. I imagine some people will continue to straggle in. This is part, part two of a little series within a series called The Character of God Controversy. Um, I've mentioned this in the last meeting that Dr. Chris Lewis and I have co-authored a book called The Character of God Controversy. Uh, this book is available at our booth, at uh, Whitehorse Media booth. It's also available in the ABCs. And I believe that my associate, Gilbert Navarro, should be here in a little while with a stack of these in case you want to just pick one up while you're here. Uh, we've discounted them for the seminar or for the convention. And it's just a very powerful book that deals with issues that are facing Seventh-day Adventists and the world, but especially within our church. Uh, I want to just clarify something that I mentioned in the last one-hour period that I mentioned the name of Dr. Graham Maxwell. He was a, uh, was a Sabbath school teacher at Loma Linda University and is quite influential uh, still today, even though he's not teaching like he was before. Uh, the book that, I, that we've co-authored does not mention his name or anybody's name. We felt that that would be the better way to go. But in this seminar, I did mention it in the last meeting, and somebody came up to me and said that she had read one of Graham's books, Can God Be Trusted, five times. And I want to clarify that uh, there is a lot of good in his teachings. I'm not saying that everything is, is wrong, but from my experience, which I shared with you uh, when I first became an Adventist, I became exposed to his teachings, especially the little book called Can God Be Trusted? I read that book, and there are, there are good points in there, uh, but there are other things that I found to be woven in that um, I found to be really just wrong, to be straight out and, and open with you. Uh, and I see a lot of what is in that book and other books like it to be a mixture of truth and error. That's what it is. And so that's my conviction. Uh, our conclusions are in the book, The Character of God Controversy. Of course, we all have to make our own decisions and uh, wrestle with the issues ourselves. I wrestled with it. Many of you may be wrestling with it. Who knows who's listening to this CDD, the CD, or who will listen to it. But uh, these are all issues that we have to pray and study and compare Scripture with Scripture and then seek to know God correctly because that's what life is all about, is knowing the Lord and knowing Him aright. Amen. And Satan's goal is to uh, lead us away from God and one of the ways that he does it is by deceiving us about who God really is and what his attributes are. And so he can lead us step by step in the wrong direction. So why don't we pray, let's bow our heads and pray, and then we'll look up a couple of texts. Before we get to Matthew 26, I wanna show you a couple more verses. So let's, let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this conference here in San Jose, and thank you that I can be here and we pray that the Holy Spirit will take charge of this meeting and all the meetings and just inspire us and teach us truth and reveal Jesus to us uh, in a way that will melt our hearts and help us to really uh, know you correctly and to follow you with everything that we have and are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, uh, before we get to Matthew 26, a couple verses. John chapter 17, verse three. This is a simple statement of Jesus Christ, but it has profound implications. And Jesus is talking about eternal life. 
John 17, verse 3, Jesus said, This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So Jesus says eternal life is knowing God. And obviously we need to know him aright. And it says knowing the only true God. Knowing the true God must be based upon his revelation of himself in scripture. And I mentioned that in the last, uh, last meeting. That is just vital. 1 John chapter 3 verse 2 also talks about God's people and the Lord and at the second coming, we're going to see him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him, how? As he is. Right, see him as he is. And that should be our goal, is to see him as he is. Uh, not just at the second coming, but right now. We need to see God as he is based upon the Bible. And if we see him in the wrong way, it's going to affect us. It's going to affect our, our Christianity. It's going to affect our, our personal experience. It's going to affect our relationship with other people. Uh, it has all kinds of implications. So uh, knowing God as he is is just, is just crucial. Now, in the last meeting, we talked about God's character being a blend of mercy and truth and justice, right? And we also talked about, we analyzed a little bit about the nature of God's justice and talked about how in the church one of the big controversies concerns God's justice and his wrath and whether that justice is entirely passive or whether it's active or whether it's both. And I, I mentioned that my belief, and I can support this from scripture, it's inside the Character of God controversy book, and to me, it's very, very clear that uh, God's justice, as it is manifested in the Bible, is a combination of both. There are times when God does withdraw and allow natural consequences to run their course. I mean, this happens all the time. Uh, it just in natural life, God lets people reap what they sow. And that's the principle, that we reap what we sow. If you plant evil seeds, you're going to reap evil seeds. If we live a life of sin, we're going to reap... Uh, a harvest in, inside of us. And sin does carry within it built-in consequences, no question about it, and dangerous consequences to all of us. But beyond that, there are times in the Bible, when we looked at the golden calf, that was one, one event, and there are many others where uh, God goes beyond just allowing natural consequences to take place. That there are times when he does himself act directly to punish sin. And he does it for good reason, and the biblical teaching is that God does do that, and when he does it, he's good in doing it. And that's part of the controversy these days, is does God punish sin directly sometimes, and if he does, is he good in doing it? Uh, if you're taking notes, at the book Patriarchs and Prophets, I believe it's page 94, it's the chapter on the flood. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 94, and I'm going by memory, it says that one of the arguments of the antediluvian wise men while Noah was building the boat and while Noah was saying that a flood is coming to destroy the world one of the arguments of the philosophers against Noah was they said that it was quote contrary to the character of God to punish sin that was one of their arguments and sadly there are many today that have adopted that philosophy 
that it's just it's contrary to the way God is to directly punish sin. He won't do that. But that's not what, that's not what the Bible says. Uh, I mentioned this also in the last program, and I want to clarify that another example of God directly punishing sin is in the book of Acts. And I think I mentioned it's Acts chapter 13, but it's actually Acts chapter 12. And it's the account of uh, the angel who struck Peter when he was in the prison and woke him up and delivered him from jail when Herod had arrested him and was about to execute him. And then later on in the chapter, Herod is giving a, an, an oration in front of this huge group of people and they're just praising him and saying, this is the voice of a God and not a man. And Herod is basking in that praise. And then the Bible says in Acts chapter 12 that the angel of the Lord smote Herod and he died. And when you read Ellen White's comments about that in the book Acts of the Apostles, uh, she's very clear that it was the same angel who smote Peter, who also smote Herod. Same angel. It's in the same chapter. But she says that it was a different stroke. And you probably heard the expression, different strokes for different folks. Well, that was a different stroke for a different folk when uh, the angel struck Herod. And so there's a lot of examples. Uh, Nadab and Abihu, when they were inside the temple and they were drunk and they weren't taking their responsibilities as priests seriously, they were a terrible influence uh, upon the rest of the Israelites and they walked into the temple, they offered strange fire uh, upon the altar and the Bible says that fire, it says, came out of the temple uh, and it consumed them. And I don't see any way that people can imagine that that really was Satan who did that because Satan wasn't inside God's temple and the Bible says it was the fire of the Lord that did that. And the reason was because these men were just really, really bad and they weren't respecting God at all. And so the time finally came after warnings and warnings and warnings that God did that. So that's another example. And there's a lot of examples in the Bible that to me there's just no way around them. It's just pretty clear that there are times when God does do this and it's part of his character and again he does it because he's a God of love and evil is evil and there's times when he acts to get rid of it and one of these days at the end of the thousand years God is going to act completely and fully and finally to get rid of sin uh, and God's people are going to praise him for it they're not going to blame him for that they're not going to accuse him of being satanic when he wipes out evil and erases it like a big eraser. Uh, one of the things that appealed to me when I was first in the process of becoming an Adventist, uh, actually even before I ever met an Adventist, when I was 20 years old, I went to a Baptist church, first time I ever, ever walked into a church, it was an all-black Baptist church down in downtown LA. And everybody knew I walked into the church and it was quite obvious I was the only person with white skin there. Uh, I'd been invited there by a friend that I met and it was a wonderful church. I had a great time there. Never been in a Christian church in my life. But one of the things that they taught me was that if you uh, don't believe in Jesus, you're going to burn in hell forever. And ever and ever and ever. And that just terrified me to believe that idea. And I really wrestled with that. And then when I first met a Seventh-day Adventist in a health food store in Northridge, I remember talking with this man and asking him, I said, what do you believe about hell? And he told me, he said, imagine... Well, actually, the, the Baptist pastor sat me down in, in his home, and he took his finger and he said, here's the world. And he said, uh, at the end of the world, God is going to take the lost and he's going to put them outside in a place called outer darkness. And there they're going to burn forever and ever and ever. That's what he said. So when I talked to this, uh, this Seventh-day Adventist young man at a health food store, I said, what do you believe about hell? 
and he had no knowledge of this previous conversation I had with the Baptist minister, and he took his finger and drew a circle in the air. And I thought, hey, <laughs> this is the same. And he said, this is the universe. And he said, the universe used to be a happy place. It was, it was holy and happy, and all the angels loved God, and everybody was, all the angels were just at peace, and it was full of joy. And then he said, uh, Lucifer rebelled against God, and it was like a cancer cell came into the universe. And he put his finger, and he went like that. And he said it was like a dot in the universe of evil. And then he said, when it's all over, when his, the history of sin has run its course, he said, uh, Jesus is going to erase that dot. And the universe is going to be clean once again. And when he said that, something inside me just clicked. I thought, you know, that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense that God's going to eliminate evil. It's not going to be there forever. People aren't going to burn in hell forever. And he said God was going to do it. He was just going to erase it. And to me, that sounded perfectly fine. Uh, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of extremes, as I mentioned before, in the church these days. And especially when it comes to God's justice, on the evangelical side, we know that many people teach that people will burn in hell forever and ever and ever. That's an extreme. On the other side, there are those that say that God is so good and so loving and so kind that he won't even punish sin. And I think that's another extreme on the other side. And the biblical view is that God is loving and good and kind. And yes, he will punish sin and get rid of it because he's good and loving and kind. And to me, that makes perfect sense. And that's what I read in my Bible. Now, let's go to Matthew chapter 26 and let's zero in on Gethsemane and on the cross. And I want to read a quotation to you if you have, if you've taken notes. From the book... God's Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, page, page 168. One sentence. It says here that no sorrow can bear any comparison with the sorrow of him upon whom the wrath of God fell with overwhelming force. That is a powerful sentence. No sorrow can bear any comparison with the sorrow of him upon whom the wrath of God fell with overwhelming force. And it's describing Gethsemane and the cross. Now let's zero in on this. Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. This was at the end of Jesus' life. After he broke the bread and passed out the juice in the upper room, in verse 30, it says, when they had sung a hymn at the end of the Passover ceremony, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Now, when you read this in the Desire of Ages, and that was the book that changed my life when I first read that. After I met this Adventist man and he drew this circle in the air and used the eraser, uh, I said, when can I go to church with you? So he brought me to an Adventist church for the first time. I checked out the Baptists, I checked out the Methodists, I checked out Calvary Chapel, checked out Jehovah's Witnesses, and then I checked out the Adventists. And when I walked into the Adventist church, the pastor recognized that I was someone new, and he brought me into his office, sat me down one day, and asked me questions, and then he reached onto his bookshelf and handed me a copy of the book, The Desire of Ages. And he said, here, take this book home and read it. And I did. And when I was done with that book, everything had changed. No more marijuana, no more drugs, no more cocaine, no more discos, no more alcohol. 
It was all, everything was completely different. And now I just saw Jesus as my savior. He just captured my heart. And what he offered me was much, much more satisfying than anything that the world could offer me. And the chapter that really reached me more than any other chapter was chapter 74, which is called Gethsemane. Gethsemane. And when you read this text, when it says they went out to the Mount of Olives, uh, this was a Thursday night. Jesus and his disciples were meandering through the streets of Jerusalem. They exited through an eastern gate. They went down a little slope, and they went up a hill heading toward the Mount of Olives and a garden called Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means the pressing out of the oil. It was an olive garden. And in the Desire of Ages, in that chapter, it says that as Jesus and his disciples were walking toward that garden, that Jesus became strangely silent. And he began to sway back and forth. And uh, it says that something mysterious was going on inside of him that his disciples could not even begin to understand. And that if his disciples wouldn't have, if they hadn't have held him up, he would have fallen to the earth. And as they're on their way, Jesus begins to moan and, and, uh, and groan, it says in Desire of Ages, as if suffering under the pressure of a terrible burden. And he began to say a few things to them on the way to the garden as they're walking. And verse 31 tells us what Jesus said. One of the things he said, verse 31, Matthew 26, 31 says, Then said Jesus to them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written. And what's that next? It's not really a word. It's a letter. One letter. I. That's right. It is written, and then this, he says, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. <coughs> Jesus is quoting a text. And, and he said, I will smite the shepherd. Now, when he says, I will smite the shepherd, I mean, who is this talking about? Uh, is it talking about the Roman soldiers smiting the shepherd? Is it talking about the Jews smiting the shepherd? Or is this talking about a divine act based upon the text? That's what Jesus is describing, something that is coming down from the sky, from heaven. Uh, in the Desire of Ages, and I'll just quote, it's right in the first couple pages of the chapter on Gethsemane, page 686. It says here that Christ was now standing in a different attitude from that in which he had ever stood before. His suffering can best be described in the words of the prophet, quote, awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, when the scripture says here in verse 31, Jesus said, it is written, I will smite the shepherd. Who knows what scripture he's quoting from? If you have little marginal references in your Bible, okay, Zechariah, Jesus is quoting a scripture. And he's quoting that text to describe his sufferings, right? As he's nearing the garden, he quotes that text. And he said, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered abroad. That text is from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. The entire verse is quoted in Desire of Ages. 
or at least more than is quoted in this text, uh, a fuller portion of it. And it's, it's significant that Desire of Ages says that the suffering of Christ can best be described in the words of the prophet. And then it quotes that text. So this is a, one of the best descriptions that we have of the suffering of Jesus. And it's a text that he himself used as he neared the garden. And so let's go back to the text and let's read the full verse. Go back to Zechariah chapter 13. Keep your finger there in Matthew 26 because we'll come back to it. But just go right before Matthew, just a couple pages to the left, near the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah 13, verse 7. This is the verse that Jesus quoted. And this is the verse that Ellen White quoted. And this is the verse that she said was the best description of Christ's suffering. And the text here says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. It's pretty clear when you read the whole verse that what is smiting the shepherd is the sword. Right? It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my fellow, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, Ellen White comments on this in many different places about that sword. What is that sword that this is talking about? Is this a Roman sword that's being awakened? Okay, it is the sword of justice. If you have this, uh, a CD-ROM with her writings on there, you can do a search for, for sword of justice, and you will find some amazing statements. In the Desire of Ages, or actually let me go back to the, to the reference I, I gave you in, uh, in the book Amazing Grace, page 167. Part of that same paragraph says this, the sword of justice was unsheathed, and the wrath of God against iniquity rested upon man's substitute, Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father. First Selected Messages, page 322, says, Voluntarily our divine substitute bared his soul to the sword of justice, that we might not perish but have everlasting life. Desire of Ages, page 687, says, The sins of men weighed heavily upon Christ, and the sense of God's wrath against sin was crushing out his life. Now, actually, I, I want to read something right before that. The page before that in Desire of Ages, the full paragraph about the sword and the quote, this is what it says. Uh, Christ was now standing in a different attitude from that which he had ever stood before. His suffering can best be described in the words of the prophet. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 13, 7. As substitute and surety for sinful man, and here's a key line, it says, Christ was suffering under divine justice. And then it says, he saw what justice meant. He saw it. He understood what was going to happen. Hitherto, he had been an intercessor for others. But now, he longed to have an intercessor for himself. Uh, we talked about how in the last program, the last meeting, that God's character is a magnificent blend of different attributes, of attributes of mercy and truth and justice. And as we looked at 
Exodus 34, verse 7, when it talks about God's justice, the scripture says that he will by no means clear the guilty, right? But that he will visit, that he will, he will punish sin. The incredible truth of the plan of salvation so that God can uphold his mercy or extend his mercy and uphold his justice is that God has done something for us through his son. The scripture says he would not clear the guilty, but he would visit. And what, what has happened in, in the Bible, in Gethsemane and on the cross, is that the guilt of the entire human race was transferred somehow, mysteriously, into Jesus, into his mind and into his heart. And God, in order to clear us and still maintain his justice, he transferred our guilt to his son. And his son experienced the justice that we deserve. And that is the only way that God has been able to maintain his justice and yet to extend the mercy that is in his heart toward lost human beings. It's a, it's a divine dilemma. I mean, God has two attributes. He's got mercy and he's got justice. He wants to be merciful, but, he, but justice is still there. So what does the Lord do? How can he forgive sin and yet not clear the guilty? How does he deal with that? That's the divine dilemma. How does God extend his mercy and yet maintain his justice? There's only one way. Only one way. And that way is by allowing his justice to fall upon his own son in Gethsemane and on the cross. And that's what the scripture means when it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. There has never been a time in human history from the fall of man to this moment when God's justice has ever fallen fully upon any human being because of sin. It's never happened in its completest sense except one time, only once. And that one time was in Gethsemane and on the cross. And as we're going to see in a little bit, that one time is very much a part of the third angel's message. Very much. And I'm going to develop this thought. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 26. And let's keep looking at what's going on in Gethsemane. Matthew 26, Jesus is on the way to the garden. He quotes the scripture in verse 31, where he says, I will smite the shepherd. It's God doing it. And the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I'm risen again, Jesus said, I will go before you into Galilee. Verse 36 says, Then cometh Jesus with them into a place called Gethsemane. As I mentioned, the word Gethsemane means the pressing out of the oil. I was there one time. I was in the Garden of Gethsemane in 1983. I had a friend of mine that had quite a bit of means, uh, a lot more money than I've ever had. And he had been to Jerusalem, and he looked at me one day, and he said, how'd you like to go to, to Israel? He said, I'll buy you a ticket. 
And I said, sure, okay. <laughs> so uh, he put me on a plane and sent me to Israel for 10 days just to get some experience. And uh, I, I went there and was with a, a group of ministers traveling around. We went to various places, went to the Sea of Galilee, went to Israel, uh, went to Caesarea. And the highlight for me was going to Gethsemane and walking around on the Mount of Olives and uh, seeing the olive trees that were there and trying to imagine what it would be like for Jesus to enter that garden. It just really it was very powerful to picture, to try to imagine that Jesus was in this very place. When the Bible talks about different places, those places were real. They are real. Gethsemane is real. The Mount of Olives is real. And Jesus is real. And he was right there inside that garden. The pressing out of the oil. And it says that Jesus said to his disciples in verse 36, Sit here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. He began to be sorrowful. Something began to happen to Christ as he approached the garden that had never happened to him before. Uh, throughout his life, uh, it says in Desire of Ages, he walked in the sunlight of God's countenance. But as he neared the garden, something began to happen. And it says he, he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Very, very heavy. Uh, some people believe that what happened in Gethsemane and on the cross was simply God demonstrating, this is called the moral influence theory, demonstrating that sin leads to death, that separation from God leads to death. And that's the way they understand Gethsemane, that it's just showing what happens when you're separated from God. But the fact is, I mean, it, that dimension is there, but it's more than that. It's not the whole story. Uh, there's a rest of the story. And when you read carefully your Bible and the spirit of prophecy, it's clear that the reason why Jesus began to be sorrowful and very heavy was because sin was mysteriously being transferred to him in a way that has never happened before. He was, uh, he was absorbing the sin of the world, the sin of Adam and the sin of every person all the way down through history, all the way to the end of time. He was beginning to experience that guilt. And not only that, but he was beginning to experience the attribute of God of himself as well. It's not a separate attribute from him. It's his own attribute. An attribute of justice, pure justice against sin. He began to feel that inside of himself. And like I mentioned, this has never, ever happened before. Nobody's ever felt this like Jesus did in the garden. And so he was, he was very, very heavy. And then in verse 38, he said to his disciples, he said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even to death. Tarry here and watch with me. Now the death that he's talking about here is not the death that we die when we die. Uh, if I would have gotten in a plane crash on the way here from Spokane, uh, that would not have been the death that Jesus was beginning to suffer. When we die, when people die, we go to sleep, right? And this happens to the good and the bad. Uh, you know, if you're on the way home and, you know, heaven forbid something happens to you, you get hit by a car, your plane crashes or whatever, 
and you're, you're dead. Uh, I mean, that can happen to a follower of Jesus or someone that's not a follower of Jesus, right? It happens all the time. The righteous and the wicked, the saved and the lost, the good and the bad, we're all subject to things happening in this world. And so when people die their normal death, and the Bible says they go to sleep. It happens to both the good and the bad. But that is not the death that Jesus was wrestling with in Gethsemane. The book of Revelation talks about the second death. It talks about those that are going to be resurrected at the end of the thousand years. And then they'll be judged. And then they will be, it says, thrown into the lake of fire. And they will experience the second death. And that is a death that has no hope of a resurrection. That's a death that there's nothing beyond the tomb. And that is a death that is the, uh, the result of sin. And that is the death that Jesus was wrestling with in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was the second death, not the first death. Verse 39 says, He went a little farther and he fell on his face. What he did was he left Peter and... No, he, he left... Uh, by this time, Judas was gone, so now he had 11 disciples left. He left eight of them at the entrance to the garden, and then he took into the inner recesses Peter, James, and John. And then he left them somewhere in the inner recesses, and then he went farther in by himself alone so he could pray just between himself and his father. And when he got farther in there, verse 39 says, he went a little farther, and he fell on his face, and he prayed. Now, this is amazing. I mean, we can't even... Nobody knew what was going on. Jerusalem was full of people, and most of them were asleep. And here's uh, Jesus and his disciples, and they're in the garden. They really don't know what's going on. The disciples don't know what's going on. But Jesus does, and he goes farther in all by himself, and he kneels down, and the Bible says his, um, he fell on his face. You know, I've never seen a picture of any, in any book about Christ's suffering in the garden where his face is actually in the dirt. Have you? I've never seen that. I always see him, you know, holding on to his hands or he's kneeling against a rock. But you never see him all the way down, face down. And that's what the Bible says. He's in the garden face down because of another sin that started in the garden, the Garden of Eden. Garden to garden. Sin to sin. And it's not just... Uh, Adam's sin, but now it's everybody's sin. And nobody, I mean, we can't even fathom really what was really going on in Gethsemane. But Jesus knew it, and he was down on the ground, face in the dirt, and then he began to pray. And it says the first word out of his mouth was not even a, a word, just a letter. He said, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So powerful. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, what was in that cup? What was he talking about? Is he talking about a cup like this? Was he, was he holding a cup? A physical cup in his hands? Obviously not. This was a symbol. Symbolic. What was inside that cup? What was it that he was wrestling with whether he was going to drink the cup or not? Okay, that, that's right. Inside that cup was, was a number of things. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a mixture that's, 
difficult for us to grasp, we can just begin to see it as the light begins to shine in our minds. Uh, inside that cup was, first of all, it was sin. It was my sin and your sin. It was everybody's sin. The sin of the whole world from Adam to the end. That was part of it. Another part of it was uh, the separation that sin brings between him and his father. And when you read Desire of Ages, there's that separation is definitely a part of the dynamic of what's going on. No question about it. Uh, sin and the separation. But there's another dimension to what's going on here. There's what, what I would call the sword dimension based upon the words of Christ in Matthew 26, 31. The sword. I will smite the shepherd, Jesus said, right? I will smite the shepherd. And then going back to the original text in Zechariah, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow, says the Lord of hosts. Now, when you read it in Desire of Ages, and I really recommend that you read that book if you haven't read it, especially the chapter on Gethsemane. It is amazing. Quite a few quotations that describe the wrath of God in the Garden of Gethsemane and what Jesus was feeling. Desire of Ages, page 753, says the, the wrath of God against sin, the terrible manifestation of his displeasure because of iniquity, filled the, filled the soul of his son with consternation. All his life, Christ had been publishing to a fallen world the good news of his Father's mercy and pardoning love. Salvation for the chief of sinners was his theme. But now, with the terrible weight of guilt he bears, he cannot see the Father's reconciling face. The withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Savior in this hour of supreme anguish pierced his heart with a sorrow that can never be fully understood by man. So great was this agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. Now, as you read this paragraph, it's describing a lot of different things. It's talking about uh, the good news of the Father's mercy. And I believe that with all my heart. It describes his pardoning love, which if it wasn't for that, we'd all be lost. It talks about a salvation for the chief of sinners. It also talks about the withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Savior in this hour of supreme anguish. And it also talks about the wrath of God against sin, the terrible manifestation of his displeasure because of iniquity. It's all there. And it's not right to take one element and exclude all the other elements. They're all there. It's a mixture, just like the mixture that's in Exodus chapter 34, describing the character of God. It's a blend. Now, we're, there's one other quote here that I'm trying to find. Okay, here it is. Desire of Ages, page 687. This is, again, from the chapter on Gethsemane. It says, The sins of men weighed heavily upon Christ, and the sense of God's wrath against sin was crushing out his life. And as I read this, I read it in a dormitory room. I was... Uh, 20 years old, going to my third year of college at Cal State Northridge. I don't know if anybody's heard of that school in uh, Southern California in San Fernando Valley. Uh, at that time, I was still smoking marijuana. I hadn't given up my drugs. I still had buddies that were 
partiers. It was just my life. That's all I knew was the party life. And here I am in a dorm, in the dorm room. It was a co-ed dorm. Uh, my dad got me in, paid some money, and got me in the dorm. I had a roommate. And I remember one time, uh, right after we had moved in together, that I was out and I came in one night and my roommate was there having a party in the room and, and there were guys and girls, you know, all around. And you could smell the marijuana, smell the marijuana coming down the hallway. And it was just a, a party place. Uh, they would turn the cafeteria into a disco on Saturday nights. And that's what I was in the midst of as a 20-year-old. And now I'm reading Desire of Ages. And I get to chapter 74, and I'm reading Gethsemane. And I'm looking at this image in my mind of Jesus way down in the garden praying a prayer to his father. And uh, my dad and I have always been really close. And we still are to this day. My dad is still alive. My mom is still alive. My dad is uh, 79. My mother is 76. They're both well up in years, but uh, they're still alive. And my dad and I have always just been really, really close. And I don't know whether my relationship with my dad affected or not my ability or God's ability to get into me and help me to really be gripped by that chapter by seeing a father and a son in anguish in Gethsemane. But it's very possible. I know a lot of people have a real hard time with their relationships with their dads. And it's difficult for them to see a heavenly father who is a loving father when their relationship with their father hasn't been so good. Um, my relationship was different with my, my dad. And, uh, and I don't know how it all happened, but I do know that there I was in the dorm room reading this book, reading this chapter, and I looked at this, this scene in my, in my mind's eye, and there was a couple of pictures uh, in the book of Jesus praying in, in the garden, one with an angel standing behind him holding a, his hand on his shoulder, another one with Jesus uh, kneeling up against a rock with his hair falling down over his face, and he had his hand on his heart, and he was, he was in anguish. N none of those pictures showed him with his face in the dirt, but those pictures were still gripping to me. And I remember sitting there reading this book and looking at those pictures and then thinking about this man and thinking, what's going on? What is happening here in the Garden of Gethsemane? Uh, when I first read Desire of Ages at the beginning, I read about Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, and I'd never heard anything like that. Uh, I, I'm Jewish. My family's Jewish. We never went to synagogue. We didn't pray. I never read the Bible. Didn't know anything about Noah or Daniel or any of these stories. And so when I started reading about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, that was brand new to me. And as I start going through the book, all the stories and the miracles and the healings, it was all completely fresh. Never heard it before. And it was, it was uh, gripping to me. But when I got to Gethsemane, I saw him kneeling and praying in anguish, a son praying to his father and praying, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. And I looked at that and I remember still thinking to myself, what is going on here? Why is this happening? Why is he suffering so much? And as I read it, it described a number of things. It described his, his tender love for me as a lost soul. It described the seriousness of sin entering into his heart and into his mind. It described the separation of the beams, the Father's beams of light and love and, 
and glory from his beloved son. I saw this separation going on. And then it, there were those other statements that were in there, like the ones that I just read to you. The statements about him sensing the wrath of God against sin that was crushing out his life. And somehow it was the combination of mercy and love and justice and wrath, divine wrath, all combined in one dynamic portrayal of what Christ was suffering, what he was going through. It was that combination that somehow reached me. And I, I don't know how the Lord did it, but to me, the miracle of miracles is that God was able to reach me into my mind and show me that Jesus was going through this for me. And it was, it was that chapter that uh, brought me over the line. It was that chapter that caused me, more than anything else, to make a decision and to say, this is the man that I want. Uh, and I thought about my wild life and all the things that I, you know, loved to do that I hadn't given up yet at that point. And those things just faded away. And all I saw was the Gethsemane man, the Gethsemane man who was praying to his father, agonizing about the cup. And inside that cup was my sin and the wrath of God against sin that I deserved, but that he was going through instead of me because he loved me. And the amazing thing was that you, you can read these statements about God's wrath, but it didn't turn me off. It didn't make me think, well, wow, if God's like that, I don't want anything to do with him. It didn't do that. It, it just, it drew me to realize that yes, God is just. Yes, he does have uh, a pure element of justice, but he was willing to, to, to have that justice go against his own son, my sins in him, and God's wrath against that sin in Christ instead of it happening to me. So he could draw me and forgive me and cleanse me so that I have no more sin and that I have him instead of my old life. See what I'm trying to say? It was all those dynamics that were all there. That's what really, that's what really reached me uh, more than anything else. And I strongly believe, as I look back on my life when I was 24 or 20 years old, and I read that chapter 74, and I realize that it was the combination of mercy and truth and justice combined that really convicted me and brought me to my knees and led me over the line to give my whole life to Christ, that it, it was that, that blend. And if you would have left some of those elements out, I don't know if it would have done it for me. I don't know if it would have really, you know, brought me over. It's the combination that that's what really pierced my soul. That yes, God is loving and good and kind. And yes, he's also just. That's his character. And in order to save me, he was willing not to clear the guilty without any justice, but he was willing to take my guilt and put it on himself and then experience the justice of God himself in order to extend his mercy to me. And that's what did it. That's what did it more than anything else. 
Uh, there's a quotation in the book Great Controversy. I don't know if you've read this or not, but this is very powerful. There's a chapter in Great Controversy that deals with the teaching of spiritualism and what the spirits teach. Spiritualism, we know, is a great danger in these last days. And there's a quote in, in a Great Controversy, page 558. And it says here that this is one of the teachings of spiritualism. It says, love is dwelt upon as the chief attribute of God, but it is degraded to a weak sentimentalism, making little distinction between good and evil. God's justice and his denunciations of sin and the requirements of his holy law are all kept out of sight. That is a teaching of spiritualism. That's what the spirits teach. When the spirits um, impersonate the dead and then appear to people, they say, everybody's going out there. Everybody's going to be in heaven. Do whatever you want. Heaven's your home. No problem, because God is a God of love and kindness and compassion, and he's going to save everybody. So love is dwelt upon as a chief attribute of God, but it really isn't true love. Uh, it says in that quote that it is really a weak sentimentalism that does not differentiate between good and evil. It is a weak sentimentalism that denies, or at least keeps out of sight, God's justice and his denunciation of sin. And my conviction is, and I just can't avoid this conviction, I mean, it's, I'm convicted. <laughs> uh, my conviction is that the only way for us to understand the true character of God and the plan of salvation and what Jesus suffered in Gethsemane and on the cross is to see the blending of mercy and justice. There's just no other way. Any other way is a perversion of truth. It, uh, it's just not the full picture. It's a half-truth, you might say. And somebody once said, be, be careful of half-truths half because you may end up with the wrong half. <laughs> and we need to be careful. The way Satan works is he mixes truth and error, doesn't he? If you go back to the Garden of Eden, the, there was the tree of life, which was the pure tree, the good tree, and then the other tree was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a blend. If you think about Babylon, Babylon is, a, is confusion, it's a blend. Uh, it's very clear in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy that what Satan does is he mixes truth and error. And so it's our task to discern these things, that the character of God is a blend, but the blend is of these different attributes that come together in a harmonious whole that is uh, rooted in his love. And Satan also conjures up a blend for, to, uh, to dish to us in these last days, a cup, his own cup, which is in Revelation 14, 8, the cup of the wine, of Babylon. And that cup is a mixture of truth and error. There are books out there in our church that do have truth, but they're combined with error. And that's what, that's what makes them dangerous, is the, uh, the combining of them. In the book of Revelation, there's a number of different cups. 
There's the cup of the wine of, of, uh, of Babylon, which is this false brew of good mixed with evil, truth and error. But then there's another cup, which is the cup that God warns about in the third angel's message. He says, if you, if you get the mark of the beast, you'll drink a different cup. If you drink the cup of the wine of Babylon, then you'll eventually drink another cup. And you remember what that cup's called? And we'll look at that in the next meeting, my last meeting. The third angel's message talks about those that get the mark of the beast, the same will drink the wine, it says, of the wrath of God, which is poured out, it says, without mixture into the cup of his indignation. Revelation 14, verse 10. What does that mean? The cup without mixture. Without mixture of what? Mercy. That's right. Uh, God's judgments throughout history have always been tapered with mercy. Always. He's always injected mercy, mercy, mercy all throughout history. But the time will come finally, and this is what the third angel's message warns about. The third angel's message warns about getting the mark of the beast and then drinking the cup of the wine of the wrath of God without mixture of mercy, without mixture, which means mixture of mercy. That means that when, if people go that final way and take that final step at the end, they'll drink that cup and there's no mercy in it, which means pure justice against sin without mercy. And the reality is that nobody has ever, up to this point, ever drank that cup, except for one person, the Gethsemane man. That's right, he drank it. And why did he drink it? He drank it because he loves you and he doesn't want you to drink it. And he doesn't want me to drink it. That's why he drank it. And it's very important that we understand that because as we'll see in the next meeting, my last meeting, um, Understanding that blending of justice and mercy rooted in love and seeing what Christ went through in Gethsemane and on the cross and his willingness to drink that cup, that is part of the heart of the third angel's message. It really is. The cup of Revelation 14.10 takes you right back to Gethsemane. Uh, we produced a TV series on this called Mark of the Beast Mysteries showing the connection between the third angel's message and the Garden of Gethsemane. And I strongly believe, and I'll stress this again in the next uh, program, that when the final test comes and the mark of the beast is enforced, I'm getting ahead of myself, um, Gethsemane and the cross, the preaching of Gethsemane and the cross must be at the heart of our message. And if it's not, we've lost our heart <laughs> uh, and we're, we're in trouble. We've missed, we've missed the boat. A um, couple more texts. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 53. <coughs> Isaiah 53 is the great messianic chapter that describes the suffering of God's Messiah. It's a powerful chapter to share with Jewish people. By the way, we've just finished a, uh, actually just started airing a 45-minute documentary to reach Jewish people. Did anybody see the Elephant Passover on the Hope Channel? Anybody see it? It just came out uh, last Saturday night and it's been airing a couple of times on the Hope Channel. 45 minutes. Did you see it? 
it's, it's, we're thrilled with it, and it's, it's designed to reach Jewish people. It's, just, it's going to come in on, on a DVD uh, shortly. And it, show, it goes back to Egypt, shows the, the uh, Israelites putting blood on the door, and a little Jewish boy is looking at his dad as the father's putting the blood on the doors, thinking, Dad, don't miss a spot. Make sure it's all there, because that's, you know, my life is at stake. And I'm Jewish, and I'm the firstborn. And if I was there in Egypt, I'd make sure my dad put that blood on that door. And then the, the documentary goes from there to, uh, to the upper room, where Jesus is celebrating the Jewish Passover and breaking the bread and passing out the juice. And then it goes to a modern Seder, where a Jewish family is celebrating the Passover. And the footage goes back and forth, back and forth, showing that it was in Egypt that the, that the whole Jewish nation was born. The Jewish nation was born under the sign of the blood, the blood of the Lamb. And then that blood pointed forward to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. And that today when Jews still celebrate the Passover, if they only understood the spiritual significance of what they were doing, they would understand that all of it points forward to Christ and to his shed blood, which he shed out of his head in Gethsemane and eventually on the cross. Very powerful. And Isaiah 53 describes this. Verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus' death on the cross was not just a demonstration that sin leads to death, as some people are teaching today. Uh, it's much more than that. It says the sin of us, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus actually took our sins, all of our sins, and the justice of God against sin was upheld and implemented right there in Gethsemane and on the cross. That's the only way it can happen, only way it could be done. Verse 10 says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The Lord did it. He has put him to grief. Now, the reason why it pleased him was because he knew that, I mean, it, 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 was, it was a combination of things. It was horrifying for both of them, but yet it was pleasing because they knew that when it was all over, they'd be, they'd be able to save us. Amen. And that's, that was the goal. Uh, the, end, the rest of the verse says, when he will make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11 says, he shall see the travail of his soul, and he shall be satisfied. He'll be pleasantly satisfied to know that his suffering in Gethsemane and his suffering on the cross was enough to save you and to save me. That's why he'll be pleased, because he'll see us in the kingdom, and he'll know that we're blood-bought children, saved by his grace, through his character, implementing a plan to get us out of here, to deal with our sin without ignoring it, to uphold his justice without allowing that justice to fall on us by having it fall on the Savior in Gethsemane and on the cross. Uh, one more quote, and then we'll take a break. And then we've got one more meeting tying all of this in to the message of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the third angel's message in Revelation. Uh, and back to Desire of Ages. This is the conclusion of the chapter on the cross, on Calvary. 
It says here on page 755 and 756 that the spotless Son of God hung upon the cross. His flesh was lacerated with stripes. Those hands so often reached out in blessing, nailed to the wooden bars. Those feet so tireless on ministries of love spiked to the tree. That royal head pierced by the crown of thorns. Those quivering lips shaped to the cry of woe. And all that he endured, the blood drops that flowed from his head, his hands, his feet, the agony that racked his frame, and the unutterable anguish that filled his soul at the hiding of his father's face, speaks to each child of humanity, declaring, it is for you that the Son of God consents to bear this burden of guilt. It is for you that he spoils the domain of death and opens the gates of paradise. He who stilled the angry waves and walked the foam-capped billows, who made devils tremble and disease flee, who opened blind eyes and called forth the dead to life, offers himself upon the cross as a sacrifice, and this from love to you. And then here's the last sentence. He, the sin-bearer, endures the wrath of divine justice, and for your sake becomes sin itself. We're going to be studying this and contemplating this and feasting on it for all eternity. We will never completely exhaust the fullness of the plan of salvation and how God's character of mercy and justice and that combination has been effectively maintained and implemented in the suffering of God's own Son until we actually get there and see Jesus face to face. That is the power, part of the power of the third angel's message. And may God help us to have it pierce our hearts and get into our hearts and put us on our knees and say, Lord, thank you that you were willing to do it for me. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Dear Father, Holy Father, what an amazing, what an amazing revelation. And we just pray that you will help us to look to Jesus, to look to you, to look to your love, to look to your plan, and to understand it. Please pierce us so that we'll see the horror of sin, your justice against it, and yet your in infinite mercy in going through all this for us so that we can be saved. Please bless us all and lead us closer and closer to the foot of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.